0: Room. And so I invite you in this moment to just be mindful of your breathing. And notice that breath. The next breath that you take, notice it. And as you release it, notice it. And once again, as you take it in. And let us set the intention as we come together that as each breath we take today continues to open our hearts expand them, that divine intelligence that lives in the heart center. And as we breathe even deeper down into the core of our being where our intuition, that, that center of intuition, that gut feeling that many times we have resides, breathing deeply into our, the fullness of our abdomen as well, activating that divine intelligence. The breath activates this. Ancient Hindu tradition calls it the Brahma, the breath of God. They know, they understand So as we breathe in deeply what I know in this moment as we have activated all three intelligence centers or at least set the intention for that to take place within us and this infinite divine intelligence within us responds in like accord to that which we impress upon it. So I affirm and know right here and right now that I am activated in my heart and in my core and in my mind in a way so all three are functioning powerfully and beautifully and wonderfully Continue to amplify for each and every one of us as we move forward this beautiful day that this spaciousness in this moment that has been created by us coming together in a mindfulness and an awareness of the power of simply being present with our breath is transformative for you and I what I know is there's an opening here and now for the information to be received and discerned in a way with clarity poise peace and power like never before that wherever we are living our lives in discord physically spiritually or emotionally I know the next layer of awareness and revelation and information that allows you and I to choose wisely and the most effectively and the most healthy and positive and powerful way possible to allow the divine creativity to be our way in each moment, that that cosmic Christ is given birth with each breath. For you are the thing itself. We are the thing itself. God shows up as us. And so I give thanks this day in knowing that, that I am an, a wave of God in the ocean of God. Not the totality, but that that divinity, that spark of divinity lives in each and every one of us. And for this I give thanks. I give thanks for beautiful music, for musicians, for notes, for, for instruments that were created hundreds of years ago from what we have today, from the, someone banging on a hollow log was the first drum. Whatever it may be, I give thanks knowing that we are blessed in every good way and resourced beyond measure and beyond what we can comprehend in our, in our small thinking nature. And so standing in that wonder and awe with you, I give thanks. I release these words knowing that they continue to work w- f- with great good for you and I to the degree that we continue to say yes to these possibilities and these ideas. For this I give thanks and invite you to say with me. And so it is. Did anybody get any snow at their house besides me? Yeah. I'm no kidding, but isn't it nice to know we've had our last snowstorm for the year? So I'm inviting you to hold that with me, and if we can't pull that one off, then I don't think we're worth it. What we say we're worth, whatever, okay? I'm just so glad that winter's finally over. I know, everybody says, when I say that, it's like... Well, I, I can't use that metaphor in public. It seems fruitless because people will always say to me, it's Alberta. Yeah. yeah, I know. It's beautiful, Alberta. I'm just glad more Americans don't know about it or we'd really be packed in here. <laughs> Seven months of balmy winter, followed by the endless days. The 1st I've told the story, but the first uh, summer we were here, and it, the sun went down at like 1130 We had no curtains on the windows, and then it came back up around three, and I thought, wow, that didn't take long at all. (laughs) Nobody said anything, but I was at Home Depot the next day buying curtains. (laughs) So we have been planting seeds of love today, and this week, this month, and using the book Undefended Love, and so I wanted to just uh, go over some of the, this book is just a phenomenal book, this Undefended Love um, and I'm going to use another book to cross-reference it today that we don't have in the bookstore. My apologies, but it's a, a wonderful book by do- our Father Richard Rohr called Breathing Underwater, Spirituality and the, and the Twelve Steps. It's a wonderful, wonderful companion to this information. So the being of getting our needs met. So how do we, what do we need to be to get our needs met? It's really a wonderful... Because uh, when I read this, you know, I put, these, I put the titles together and then I looked at it and I said, what was I trying to do here? You know, so don't don't think you get confused at times. I do as well, and I thought, oh yeah, I remember now what inspired that. But the being of getting our needs met. So we, what we have is we have a structure of being that I know so many of us know, and from different modalities and, and different um, bodies of work. But I wanted to touch on it today. There's there's nine personality types that the uh, Enneagram. Has identified. And the Enneagram comes from the Greeks, which the Sufis took it. The Sufis are the, the Muslim or the Islamic lovers of God. So they're Rumi and they're Hafiz and they're the poets and, the, and they're, they're the ecstatics for spirit and oneness. But they took it and they adapted it and then it's been contemporized and put into a package of knowledge. And in this book, Undefended Love, these ladies have used that information in a, in a, on page 82 and 83. They call it the personality preoccupations and strategies. Personality, preoccupations, and strategies. And what that means is that we all show up with a certain propensity the way we do life, the way we show ourselves to the world, and, and so how, how we carry ourselves. And so I'm going to, I have um, bullet points around each one, and I'll, I'll explain because what I'm going to go through, there are nine of them, so thank you so much for bearing with me, and then we'll get into a discussion about uh, where we go from here having this information. The first one, is called And, and so in an enneagram, what they'll identify is this pattern that we live from and the personality that we sh- tend to show to the world. And it's healthy to know when we're in our, our healthy pattern and when, when we're in our unhealthy pattern. And that's what I love about it. So number one, you may see yourself coming and going in some of these. I'll, I'll, I'll share them as succinctly as I can. Number one, I do everything perfectly or according to the rules. I am always fixing myself and others to try and make things right. Does anybody here have that practice going? All right, nobody. That's great. So we can cross that one off the list. So the reason that other people do it, because nobody here does it, obviously, is to experience ourselves as right, doing right, following the rules, doing things perfectly. If I do it perfect, then I'm perfect. What it... what it keeps us from feeling. So we do this to avoid feeling something and when we're not in our healthy pattern. What we're trying to avoid is the the idea we're imperfect, that we're flawed, that we're not right, we're not welcome, we're like a mistake. And what we're seeking is perfection, wholeness, and serenity. But there's these patterns that we have and we can adapt, so I'm gonna do things perfectly. And so it's really, the nuance of this is also the consciousness, the, the kingdom of consciousness we're doing these things from which is a whole other talk. Number two is I caretake. I take care of everybody. I try to fill others' needs and please others. So I will be for you what you need me to be. And I've, you know, it's a very interesting uh, uh, pattern and model, but, but it's a very popular idea. And so what the longing for to experience oneself in this pattern of caretaking is to feel wanted, adored, needed, generous, and loving. What a what beautiful... Isn't that a beautiful thing? But what we're trying to avoid is that we're not wanted, we're needy, we're undeserving, and we're unlovable. So we work hard against that. And the qualities that we're seeking are generosity, love, autonomy, and strength. Number three, I produce, work, I, I, produce I work hard, I achieve, and I become what the others want. Once again, it's all about that relationship of projection of the other person, and I'm going to work hard, because working hard is a really popular and acceptable addiction in our culture. And that is done so that we are perceived as good, successful, productive, efficient, and having integrity. What it's trying to avoid is feeling bad, a failure, inadequate, ineffective, and deceitful. And the essential qualities are goodness, value, and truth. On the next slide, number four, I reject my present reality. I reject who I am, what's going on, and I focus on what I believe is missing. So it becomes a search for something that is missing which is a very popular idea and it can go on forever, which is really great because there's no end to it because something is missing and I'm going to keep looking for it. And even when it looks like I find it, I'm still missing it, so I'll just keep looking. What it, the, the experience that we're, we're hoping to have is feel special, unique, open, available, compassionate, emotionally expressive. And the, we're trying to avoid feeling ordinary, unworthy, insufficient, cold, unsympathetic, too much a burden. And the longing, the essential quality is contentment, equanimity, which is balance. Discernment, compassion, and beauty. Number five, I control my time with others. I withhold and I remain an observer. <clears throat> Another strategy. We'd, we've done a lot of work in leadership around here around uh, conflict uh, strategies or methods with Eileen uh, Flanagan. And, and when we first started doing this work, people would say, well, I don't do conflict. Well, avoidance is a strategy. Appeasing is a strategy. When we think of conflict, we think of a battle when, in fact, many times we don't want to do the battle, so we back off and we withhold. It's a way of controlling as well. So what we're trying to experience for ourselves in that is spaciousness, clear, objective, intelligent. What we're trying to avoid is feeling overwhelmed, that I don't know, that I'm powerless, that I'm out of control. And so what we're seeking is clarity, spaciousness, and intelligence. Clarity, spaciousness, and intelligence. Next slide, Number six. Actually, there's one left on this slide. I scan the environment for danger. I stay anxious and compulsively try to figure things out. So the world is a scary place, and I'm on guard all the time. What we're attempting to create for ourselves is to feel safe, feel trusting, feel certain. What we're trying to avoid is feeling helpless, defenseless, and ambivalent. And so the essential qualities are courage, certainty, and conviction. Now the next slide, the last slide, the last three. Number seven, I distract myself through the accumulation of people, things, or experiences and keep all of my options open. I, I, I'm very familiar with this pattern. And, and uh, watched it get played out for a long time in my own life to get distracted. Always busy, always busy, always something to do, always go somewhere. Never a quiet moment, boom, 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 activity, activity, activity. And all of our options are always open. What we're trying to show is that we're alive, we're interested, we're happy, we're enthusiastic, and we're having options. I can do anything I want. What we're trying to avoid is is boredom, we're uninteresting, our emotional pain, we're depressed, and the feeling that I don't belong. And the essential quality is joy, open, and vitality. Number eight, I work or fight to create a fair and just world. The world's unfair. When we stand in the world and say the world's unfair, what do we look for? What do we extract from that conclusion? Circumstances and experiences of the world being unfair. Which at the, at the depths and depths and depths of this, if we understand we're all eternal and that all of our souls have the, a, a purpose, then how can anything be unfair? And yet I know we, we see suffering, we want to fix and help that. And I, and I think that's our divine nature of oneness. But I'm just saying that a lot of times it's, it's more important to allow people to have their own experience even though we'd like to step in and think we can fix it. So that's part of that discernment too, that spiritual discernment. Is this mine to do? Is this mine to assist with? And that's part of having a a deep spiritual connection with with the infinite divine intelligence, so we're we're guided in that. But anyway, I work or I fight to create a fair and just world. What we want to experience for ourselves with that is that we are blameless, we're free, we're in control, we are innocent, we're innocent, Perfection. And what we're attempting to avoid by pushing that down is is, uh, the feeling we feel like a scapegoat, controlled by others, we're at fault, we're wrong, we're helpless. The essential quality is freedom, innocence, power. And last but not least, number nine, is I try to put the world in order through mediation, eliminating conflict or becoming invisible. What we're trying to experience in that is present, alive, harmony, and peaceful. What we're trying to cover up or avoid is like I don't matter, this feeling I don't matter, I'm dead and unfeeling, I'm in conflict, I'm invisible, when the essential quality is presence, peace, and aliveness. So I think this is a really nice list of of the personality preoccupations and strategies. And you may see yourself there, you may have really uh, rich and wonderful experiences with some of these. They're all necessary. They're all necessary. So if you feel like you've done something wrong because you've identified with one or two of these particular strategies, you haven't. They're all necessary. But what I want to talk about is what we do knowing this now, why it's good to know this. And I know I, someone came up to me uh, after the first service and said, you know, have you ever gone through this per- personal development training? Because they teach all this. And I said, yeah, I get it. That stuff's all in all this stuff, and you know, I, I'm not gonna name names, but, but there's, truth is truth. I mean, this information has been around for centuries. As I said a couple weeks ago, you know, it all started with in, the, in the, the Western world with Phineas Quimby and then Mary Baker Eddy. And then it has branched out into things that are more non-spiritual, but the training and all that, so I get that. But I think it's important because these are, these are some, some tried and true uh, designators of how we operate. Strategies, so we, we need them so we can uh, survive. But what happens with all these at the end of the day, is they become our addictions. We can become addicted to... to Addictions are, uh, first of all, we cannot transform what we do not acknowledge. So the reason I share these with you is not to punish you or to tell you that you've done something wrong, but simply to say, until we pull them up and look at them and bring awareness and consciousness to it, they continue to operate in our lives unconsciously. And part of, the, part of this journey and the challenge for us is to take responsibility and ownership of that, which is true for us. So you cannot transform what you do not acknowledge, which then the next step is to be able to take responsibility in your own life. The universal addiction that we all share is, is to our own patterns of thinking. We're all addicted. We become, become entrenched in the way we think what is right, what is wrong, what is good, what is bad. These are the things that I know. And this is that personality part of us. See, the the name of this book, the patterns, the personality preoccupations are called the defended personality. Our personality has a job. And it is to make sure we survive. And it is gonna do everything possible to make sure that that job gets done. So we we decide we're gonna take a meditation class. And we're in that meditation class and we're asked to meditate every day. And about the third day, all of a sudden, the thought bubbles up, this is stupid you're wasting your time. Why are you meditating? You could be doing all these things, whatever those things are. That is that egoic nature that is so used to having its own way with us that it's just in the resistance. So then we forget or then we get get lazy or we fall out of the patterns. I have a wonderful um, video I'm gonna show in a couple weeks of one of the Canadian rowing coaches and he talks about how he trains his athletes. And at some point you've gotta push that resistance away. And continue to move through. And I think it's true spiritual practice. Part of spiritual practice is you've got to push through the resistance. And when we understand our resistance, what it looks like, part of my resistance is I always forget. I have amnesia. And I go, wow, I forgot that. I didn't write it down, didn't care enough to give it enough energy. Then I forgot. And I realized that's a very subtle and insidious form of resistance for me. So universal addiction is, to our, uh, is, is addiction to our own pattern of thinking. Our stinking thinking. As uh, Father Richard Rohr talks about in this book that... Uh, beautifully cross-re- cross-references this breathing underwater and if we try to change our ego with the help of our ego we only have a better disguised ego so in other words the, the, the shift and change we're looking for if we aren't willing to go deeper if we aren't willing to do some of that deep inquiry we're stuck it's never going to change one of the patterns and things that's happening with our movement on the planet right now is that we know another good idea is not the answer that we've gone as far as we can with our minds, and now it is not so much the mind, there's something wrong with the mind, it's just that we have, we have excluded the heart intelligence and that intuitive intelligence. So it requires all three. And, uh, and actually, Father Richard Rohr writes, writes about that in this Breathing Underwater. Thomas Merton, amazing theologian, was a monk. His monastery was in the mountains of Kentucky but a prolific writer and thinker, said all mature spirituality in one sense or another is about letting go and unlearning. That's not about filling up more and more and more and more. It's about dissolving, dissolving, dissolving. W.H. Auden, next slide, we would rather be ruined than changed. Now the personality would rather be ruined than changed. We would rather die in our dread than climb the cross of the present and let our illusions die. It's from the apropos of many things. That's how entrenched we can be with our personality. I'm right. I don't even care if it's right or not, but this is what I know, and I'm going to sit in this, even if it, if it takes us down the path of, of destruction. And you see that. You see it being played out in our culture. You see it with, the, the, you know, I think you see it with some of this aberrant uh, violence that breaks out. If I can't live and have a satisfying life, no one can. This cynicism and this rage and this, you know, but, but entrenched in this whole idea that, you know, this is right, they're wrong. They are the enemy and we have wars. One of the challenges with spiritual practice is it'll move us into a state of grace. And so I want to share this quote with you from Father Rohr. It says, grace is always a humiliation for our ego, it seems, Grace. The state of grace is always humiliation. What the personality says, "Oh my God, I can't move into a state of grace. I will be so vulnerable." And yet, without vulnerability, we can't open ourselves up to this larger world. It's so paradoxical. And we can do it in bits and pieces. You know, this week you can do it for ten seconds. You know, I'm I'm open to an experience of divine grace. And then the following, we do it for twenty seconds. You don't have to take it on all at once. We, what, it, what it requires is for this transformation to happen is vital spiritual experience, spirituality that reaches to the hidden levels and a deeper and wider perspective, an openness, a willingness. And that's what all the great teachers have taught us. You know, the teacher Jesus in all the scripture would talk about, well, he used the metaphor of the, 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 um, the branch being cut off from the tree, which is a, an articulate, I mean, he was talking about this then. How we can get so wrapped up in the world of the material world that we, we lose our connection to spirit, we live in duality, that there's right or wrong, good or bad, that there's evil, there's the devil and there's God. When, in fact, what he was speaking about is when we're cut off from source, he used to talk about the, the grain of wheat, the wheat grain, and how the wheat grain would have to die so that the wheat stock could be born. So and he used those as metaphors, because you know, everybody was farming then. Everybody understood that when you cut a branch off of the tree, it no longer lives. So he, he taught in these beautiful parables about when we lose our connection to spirit, to this, this life-giving source, we, we wither and die. So healing, as, as Richard Rohr talks about in, in Breathing Underwater, reco- requires three things. It requires purgation, which is cleansing, which is dissolving, which is looking at error beliefs, which is looking at these personality preoccupations mm-hmm. and strategies... Bringing awareness to it and starting to dismantle it through spiritual practice. There's got to be an opening. There's got to be room for newness. Because when when our ego and our personality and our mind is so full of ideas that there's no opportunity for newness to to find a place to be expressed, nothing happens. So the purgation is the first step. That's why I'm so enamored of the the co-creation work we do here. I just did one with our foundations class Saturday morning. We did a, we did a sacred healing circle and we identified an error belief. We go and, we, we, and we bring that into awareness through spiritual practice and prayer and setting intention, we release it and we embody a new quality. Because the universe supports a vacuum. It's not just so much erasing it, it's also then embracing a quality of the infinite. These qualities, essential qualities at the end of each one of these personality uh, strategies I read. Perfection, wholeness, serenity, generosity, love, autonomy, strength. So it requires a cleaning, a house cleaning, an examination, because then we can move to illumination. And the illumination might be, oh my gosh, there is something beyond this. I'm not alone in this. You know, one of the first steps in the, in the 12-step program is I'm powerless. And that seems so paradoxical to us. We're not, oh my God, I'm not powerless. What they're talking about there is the personality. We go round and round and round with these good ideas and these good ideas and strategies and strategies and all they do is take us in a circle. As, do, as Father Rohr says within the book, and I think it's true, we don't start to step into it in a meaningful way until we've exhausted all of our strategies. Because what we're doing then is not allowing this infinite divine presence to move through us, to guide us, direct us, resources, us, inspire us. So the paradox is in that surrendering of, of saying, it's not my life, my life is God's life and moving into that into that experience of the sacred and then all of a sudden this powerlessness is empowering but in a whole different way so it's a very it's very interesting that's like the near enemies this illumination which is that idea of possibility of our souls waking up i have a soul i'm connected to something bigger than me and oh my gosh look at the possibilities and we've had, our, we've had enough of these strategies that have limited us. We get that down, it's time to, to put them down and love them and dissolve them. And then of course union, we move into union. That's why I love, you know, I love our Sunday service. I love how the music lifts us up and how the coming together and the, how we hug one another and we see one another and we laugh together and we cry together, all these things. But it's, it's just such a reflection because God shows up in our lives as you and me and everybody. And some of us are aware of that, and some are awake to that, and some others aren't. But that's not our concern. What our concern is is what's going on in here, in this temple. So as, as Father Rohr says on this next slide, par- here's some of the paradoxes. We suffer to get well. We have challenges and obstacles and things that come up in our lives so that we can bring mastery to them and awareness and consciousness to them, and live through them and beyond them. We surrender to win that whole idea. I'm powerless. You know, I've had people after, you know, and what happens with, the, with what I've watched happen with addiction, and I've heard it over and over in classes, you know, I used to go to a 12-step meeting when I was struggling with this and this, but everybody get up and go, hi, I'm Joel, and I'm an alcoholic, and I don't want to be in a room of people who are affirming their, their sickness. And, and when, we, when we hear that, what we need to understand is that is the first stage of it. That is people identifying their personality preoccupations and strategies because the only way through the threshold of something new and something more alive is by being humbled. That is that grace that is required. That I don't know how to do this. I am powerless over this in my life. I know I can't take another drink the rest of my life or I can't abuse alcohol or whatever it may be that is my drug of choice, but it is that personality moving aside so grace can be present. And the challenge with it as well is that many times people get into the 12-step programs and they just stop when they stop drinking. They just get to the brigation part and they go, I'm done drinking, I'm done drinking. Richard Rohr writes about it in here so beautifully, I want to share it with you. I know people like this. He calls them dry drunks. These are the people who do not drink or take drugs anymore, but they drive the rest of us to want to drink by all their all-or-nothing Attitudes. I told you I told the story before I was over at the second cup having a meeting with someone and this guy came in that was this fellow happened to be a 12 stepper and this fellow's fellow from his home group and he came in and he found out I was a minister and then he circled around me. he literally circled and stared at me for like 15 20 minutes I finally said well let's go let's go have a talk and I said what's up and he wanted to make sure that I was preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ from the King James Bible and I said to him, look, man, I'm right there with you. If the King James Bible was good enough for Jesus, it's good enough for me. He felt good about that. <laughs> I mean, he was hell-bent for leather that he was going to make sure, but what I was teaching lined up with his entrenched all or nothing. You either believe exactly what I believe, or there's something wrong with you. And he grabbed his little red wagon with all his, everything he owned in it and, and walked away after... Uh, 20 minutes. I thought, wow, there's something to aspire to. <laughs> but I mean, it's the insanity of entrenchment. It's it's that's it, insane thinking. He said here, Richard Rohr said that, that this is fascinating too. He said that when AA was quite young, a number of eminent psychologists and doctors made an exhaustive study of a good sized group of so-called problem drinkers. They finally came up with a conclusion that shocked the AA members of the time. This was their conclusion: these disting- distinguished men had the nerve to say that most of the alcoholics under investigation were still childish, emotionally sensitive, and grandiose. So all I'm saying is when you stop drinking, that's just the first step. When you stop abusing, that's just the first step. And if there's not that movement down and in, and that, that, that dissolving of error beliefs and misidentities, you just spin, you're just a dry drunk. And, and so there's another opportunity. I'm not picking on those guys, but we see it over and over again. You know, you know when you're a room of healing. You know when you're in a room of sobriety. So, three spaces must be open. I mentioned them earlier, as uh, Father Rohr says, and I would agree because we've been doing this work with leadership around here. It's our minds, it's our hearts, and our bodies. And he articulates this beautifully as well, because this is truly what I think we're called to do at this point in time—to finally surrender ourselves to healing. We have three spaces. Three spaces must be opened up within us. And all at the same time, our opinionated head, our closed-down heart, and our defensive and defended body. This is the work of spirituality, and it is work. Yes, it is the finality, the work of a power greater than ourselves, and it will lead to great luminosity and depths of seeing. Well, that's, that's heavy lifting. It's heavy, heavy lifting. He says, to keep the mind space open, we need some form of contemplative or meditative practice. Hallelujah. To keep the heart space open, we need several things. First of all, we need some healing in regard to our carried hurts from the past. We can't just affirm over it. We can't just do spiritual bypass. That's why, I was, once again, I don't know a quicker, faster, and deeper way than through, spa- than through the co-creation process of identifying an error belief and going about the work of dissolving it. Years and years and years and stuff we carry with us. And I think we need to confront it with, with powerful spiritual practice and dissolve it. And if I find a faster and better and more effective way, I'll let you know and we'll be on it. But that takes a bit of time. I'll say to people, what's required? Okay, you've carried all this pathology with you for the last umpteen years, 30, 40 years. And so what the request is that you will spend seven days releasing this prayer 70 times at one time for seven days to help shift and change it. Oh my God, no. (laughs) 70? Yeah, I'm sorry to say, 70. Oh, God. I wonder what time Mass is at the Catholic Church tomorrow morning. (laughs) Yeah, I know. You know how many lousy, stinking thoughts I've had day after day, moment by moment, 7,000 times a day? I'm not even aware of it. All of a sudden, I'm going to stop thinking like that and start affirming and working, going to work and digging it out. You know, sometimes, have you ever cut down a tree and have to dig the roots out? Take some digging. And then it's important that we recognize the wrong side, these, these strategies, so the good side can be set free. Because the truth is we are, at the core of our being, we're perfect. We are perfection. We are wholeness. We are serenity. We are generosity, love. Nobody's implanting that through spiritual practice. It's revealing it. He says that the, the, that the heart space can be opened by such activities as music, art, dance, nature, fasting, poetry, Games, life-affirming sexuality, and, of course, the art of relationship itself. Mass murderers are invariably loners who participate in none of these things but merely ruminate and retreat to their head and their explanations. That's true. I did that talk a number of weeks ago about um, Dr. Brown who did this study on play. And he said one of the common denominators with all of these people that have been serial killers and, and all of this acting out is they, they didn't play as children. They never had a chance to play. It's fascinating, isn't it how we can track this stuff? I mean, we are blessed with all this information. So on a Friday evening, or Thursday evening, one of the nights last week, I went and saw Awake, which is, was the movie of Paramanza Yogananda, and it was at the, uh, the Garneau. We'll get his picture up there in a moment. And it was a fascinating. I knew nothing about this guy, other than he founded the Self-Realization Fellowship. You've probably seen him. He looked, he looked a lot like Jesus. Actually, as he got older, he was 59 when he made his transition, but he you know, He was, still had the dark hair and just an amazing man. But he brought to the West his form of meditation and also physical yoga. And I'm listening to the movie, and everything that I've read in our tradition, I could hear in what he had to share. And I know that Dr. Holmes and all of the, the, the wonderful thinkers around spirituality were influenced by the, the uh, Eastern in, uh, mystics. Holmes was a great fan of Sri Aurobindo, He was also, uh, and Vivekananda had come about 10 years before uh, Paramahansa. But it was just fascinating. And what he said was it requires meditation. Meditation. To have a meditation practice. His meditation practice was to get quiet and talk about posture, talk about having your chin up, and then just say, reveal thyself. Reveal thyself. And so this was a, pro- a very powerful, profound practice. And one of his followers came to him who was a civilian. Now, there were people that became monks with him, and they gave up everything, and they went and lived at this, uh, uh, the various monasteries that he taught from. But there were many that were just like you and I, that were civilians and go out in the world, do their work, and, and he said that. He said, the challenge is not to be a renunciate, to move away from the world. The challenge is to continue to do this work and take it into the world in our everyday lives. That is a lot more challenging. This would be so much more easy, you know, doing church would be so much easier if, if people weren't around. <laughs> I've always said that. It's a great job, other than you've got to deal with people all the time. I'm kidding. I love you guys. On the left side, I love you guys. You guys over here, I adore you, so. But anyway, but the point is, it is, it's a challenge, because we hear all these great ideas, and we go out in the world, and then somebody does something. Oh, golly, I was all set to be spiritual, and then they did that. Oh. But, but one of his civilian devotees came to him and said hey he says you know I really I love this and I love what you're teaching and I love the yoga the physical yoga which is the path one of the pathways to God and I love the meditation which is another pathway to God but he said I love to drink and Paramahansa said I'm and I'm embellishing this now but he said I'm still drinking and he says well go ahead and drink he says really he says, yeah go ahead and drink how about smoking he says yeah go ahead and smoke how about chasing women? Yep, go ahead and chase women, sure. This guy's like, this is great. I got a spiritual practice, I'm part of a community, and I can smoke and drink and, and, and you know, be a, be a serial dater. And he said, but what you may find is that over time with practice, those things may fall away for you. So what he understood was that, you know, do it as long as it serves you, but at some point in time as you deepen and you start to reveal that divine presence that lives within you, those things will fall away. That's why he was wise enough not to say, hey, you gotta stop that now, but to realize that continue to do the practice, continue to dive into the deepness and the richness of what's available, to this quantum field. I mean, he was talking about the grooves in the brain that we're now hearing from the neuroscientists. In 1910, he was talking about spirit being energy, in 1910, it, there's nothing new. I haven't read his uh, autobiography of a yogi, but I'm going to, because I'm ready to read it now. But I, this man was amazing, and he wanted to go back to India. He, didn't, he said, I want to go home. He, yeah, but he, he followed his call. And it's such a powerful thing. I, show, I know it's showing at the Garno. Someone told me, to, I think, to, hmm, some, it's today at 1. Let's get over, oh, today at 1. We better get out of here now. And tomorrow at 4. Thank you. But it, it'll, uh, it's a wonderful, wonderful movie. It's an hour and a half. So the practices. How do we move out of this? Richard Rohr says prayer is the way we change our operating system. And I'm talking intentional prayer. I'm talking centering prayer. There's one life. That life is God. That life is my life right here and right now. That kind of prayer. Not, well, there's a, there's a power and a presence, and I'm part of it. Throw the part out. Just do the full-on thing. Stand under the waterfall of grace and say, that life is my life right here and right now, the fullness of it. But drink it in. Man, let it flow through you. Let love wash through you like never before. Yeah. whoo is right. Just as I said that, I just, whew, I got the God bumps. Whee! If I start to float up, you grab, Karen will grab my legs, Okay. Prayer—it's the way we change our operating system. That's why we teach it. That's why we emphasize it. Because what we need to do is we, to go to work at those grooves in our brains. That's not enough. Those those personality patterns that don't work for us and dismantle it and dissolve it. And it takes time. It's a lifetime of that stuff. And it's okay wherever we are. And it's okay what patterns we have. Just don't stay stuck there. Don't stop. Stop with the addiction right there. We can become addicted to our thinking, just as we can to alcohol or drugs. It's the same pattern. We are an addicted culture. We are addicted as nations of what we stand for. It's not that, that things aren't beautiful in nations, but there's so much more possible. Meditation. As I said, Paramahanda, reveal thyself through me. Reveal thyself through me. And I wish I'd written down the rest of his affirmation. It was beautiful. So simple. Reveal thyself. And he would listen. Towards the end of his life, he would go into samadhi, which is that deep state of awareness in that quantum field. In his eyes, they showed a picture of his eyes lighting up. It was just amazing. They called him... Um, Pramahansa, because Pramahansa means supreme swan, which means the ultimate spiritual um, development. Compassion and forgiveness, gratitude, loving and caring for your body. All those things are important. This body's amazing. This whole pattern that we have of an endless capacity for self-loathing. It's got to stop. We've got to catch ourselves when we do it. So you made mistakes. Damn any Christmas. Everybody has. We all have these patterns going on. Let's cut ourselves some slack. You know what? I'm going to do the best I can today. And if I make another mistake, I am going to forgive myself as fast as possible. And other people too. It opens us up to this newness, this grace and beauty. Because otherwise, we cut ourselves off from the tree. Next slide is I I showed you at the beginning of the month, and I want to bring it back because it's so profound. And after doing this work and spending time with this material, I feel so blessed. Aldous Huxley from the Perennial Philosophy, we can only love what we know, which includes our our, um, personality preoccupations and strategies. It's not to hate them. It's to love them and to dissolve them. Realize I don't need this strategy anymore because what I know is I don't need that to defend myself. I stand in wholeness. I stand in grace. I stand in oneness, I stand in love. You know, the reason that we get into partnership, this is beautiful too, and I've just got to share this and then one last slide, because I know we got to get over and see the movie. This is Undefended Love on page, uh, chapter five. There's, I don't know what the page number is, there's no page number on here. Closeness, as we will soon understand, is not the ultimate goal of relationship is that fascinating? It's not the ultimate goal of a relationship. It is a developmental stage. There are, in fact, two levels of closeness that every couple must pass through on the way to intimacy. The first, which we call unhealthy dependency, is where we are focused on our partners to the exclusion of ourselves. Has anybody ever done that? Look what an involved group you are. Okay, thank you. Yeah, we meet somebody. It's like, wow, and we just give ourselves and everything to them. And then we're watching any expression, anything comes up, and then what must I become to make this person continue to be so joyful, free, and happy? All that stuff. And that's, we all do that. That's just part of, this, it's part of it. The second stage is the mature, mutually supportive level of healthy closeness. The foundation upon which true intimacy is built and maintained by exploring the ways in which closeness can be healthy or unhealthy. So it's good to know it. And then we can work in the direction we wanna work. We can more easily make choices that move us towards the fullness of an undefended union. So how does this look? This is why we, this practitioner work that we, t- we coach and teach here is so important. Because what happens for all of us is we slip back into old patterns. So I, Laura and I, my wife Laura and I have had this discussion throughout the week looking at this material. And one of the things that, that I've noticed about what I've been able to do through my own journey is I will go off the rails or she will have, she'll be processing And it's so sacred and beautiful to to hold the space and just nurture them back into wholeness. Not to fix, not to compare, not to feel like there's something wrong, but to nurse them and welcome them back, or to to hold that space of wholeness, which is what practitioners do. I tell practitioners here we don't give advice. And I think it's, it's so interesting because our head, we're up in our head thinking and doing what I gotta do and I gotta help this person. I gotta figure, hold the space of grace. When you embody grace, when you embody unconditional love and you hold that space for one another, and that's what meaningful one-on-one relationship is, is to stand in that awareness and see where you're, you're, you're slipping into these personality patterns that we all had to have so we can survive and realize, wow, we have come together to give birth to something amazing. And as I stand in this awareness for another, I'm standing in it for myself. That's oneness. It's a beautiful act of love and devotion. And I don't think any of us learn learn that without going through these trials and tribulations, having our hearts broken, having the disappointments, looking at how we do relationship and realize, you know what, this isn't working. But rather than die on that cross of of certitude to realize, realize there's things I can shift and change here. And the last slide I want to share with you today is Gay and Katie Hendricks done a lot of work around relationships. And I'm not just talking about the couple's relationship. I'm talking about relationships with many, many facets of life. But, and they said, imagine every day that you could remember less and less and know more and more. And this comes from undefended love. This is exactly what it is. To know less and less, to put down my intellect and understand at the deepest level of my being who I am and whose I am. Who you are at the core of your being, who I am at the core of my being, and how do I give birth to that, and what must I move aside, what must I dissolve, what must I, I bring them at the light of day, and mourn, and cry many times, because sometimes it hurts, but in knowing that, and bringing it into awareness, there's a beauty and a grace that emerges, it's what Pramahansa talked about, it's what Ernest Holmes talked about, it's what Jesus talked about, being cut off from the vine, and so, I just think it's a beautiful, beautiful thing, that we have all this information, all these beautiful writings and insight and knowledge. And it's our opportunity either to carry it forward in our lives or not. It's our opportunity to give birth to it or not. And I'm just so grateful to be in a community that is alive with these possibilities, that we stand on this cutting edge of what consciousness is calling us to do, that we can no longer get there just with our minds. It requires our hearts and it requires honoring and loving these beautiful physical forms we have as well in the most sacred way possible because God really does show up as you and I. And so it is. Thank you so much. All right.